Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are finding out about the battleship HMS Barham. This is part of our iconic ship series. It's actually episode 12, so if you've not managed to listen to any others, do please find the rest of them online, wherever you get your podcasts or at snr.org.uk. There is a veritable fleet of iconic ships. We have covered both merchant and naval and leisure ships as well, covering centuries of history. Today we are looking at HMS Barham because it is the 25th of November and on this day in history in the Second World War HMS Barham was sunk by a U-boat and the event astonishingly was captured on film. To tell me more about the remarkable ship and the dreadful events of this day in 1941, I'm speaking to Dr Phil Weir. Phil is a naval historian and he is, without doubt, the most active naval historian on Twitter. You can find him with the well-selected Twitter handle at Naval Historian. Phil has recently published a book about Dunkirk called Dunkirk and the Little Ships, which I would urge you all to buy for Christmas. Here is Phil. Phil, thank you very much for talking to me today. Pleasure as always, Sam. Um, HMS Berham, I mean, we decided to have this discussion because I think primarily of the unbelievable images that survive of the explosion. I came across it a, a few years ago and um, I was a- astonished at the kind of the, the graphic detail of it. It really brought home the, you know, the violence of warfare at sea in the Second World War. But I was also amazed I, by how few people had seen it. It, it, it almost feels like it's something that, that should be better known than it is. Um, have you you've seen, you've seen the pictures? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I and mean, it, it's one of, I think, really only two uh, battleships that ever caught on moving pictures. The, uh, the other one was the uh, um, Austro-Hungarian battleship that uh, was also frequently used and again um, torpedoed by an um, Italian torpedo boat and uh, is caught on camera capsizing um, in, a, in a very similar fashion. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite phenomenal um, as, as footage and you know, almost unique. Um, it's extraordinary when you look at it in detail as well. Um, I should say to everyone who's listening, you haven't seen the footage of HMS Barham exploding, shocking and sad as it is. Do um, check us out, the Society for Nautical Research's Twitter feed or Facebook or on the Mariner's Mirror Pod Instagram. We'll be able to get it up there for you all to look. But um, you know, obviously you've got this this extraordinary scale of the explosion, but when if you look closer, you can actually see people scrabbling around on the hull as it capsizes. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible footage, and she's she goes down in very very short space of time. Um, so casualties are obviously very high. Um, the torpedoes, you know, start filling her with water. She starts capsizing. Um, and the abandoned ship order is given all those you know, fairly obvious that. <laughs> At this point, so you need to get down. out. <laughs> On fire, yeah. Um, and, yeah, the, the magazines get touched off and there's this almighty explosion. And, as you say, you can st- still see there are people, you know, desperately scrambling over the hull of the this 
rapidly capsizing battleship to try to get off. And it's, it's incredible visceral imagery um, of, of these, these poor guys who you know, are literally, in, in a lot of cases at that point, here one second and gone the next. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's rewind a bit um, and we'll find out about, about HMS Barham. So tell me about the ship. Well, uh, HMS Barham was one of the uh, probably the most successful and remarkable class of battleship perhaps ever built. Um, she was uh, also extremely consequential um, in many ways. Now, she was fourth ship in the, the Queen Elizabeth class, um, you know, a very famous class of battleship. Um, but you know, they are the most powerful battleships, arguably, of the First World War. Um, they are the fastest, um, biggest guns, you know, they're huge 32,000-ton beasts. Um, and, you, you know, they're, they're the first ship's arms with the 15-inch guns, you know, the, the, the huge things that you see outside the, the Imperial War Museum. I know them exactly, yeah. These, those <laughs> are the exact guns. They, they're, in fact, effectively created for the Queen Elizabeth class. Right. Um, they're, they're the first ones to be, to be fitted with these things. So they've got enormous gun power, you know, very well armoured, very fast. And the, the speed is an interesting one. Um, and this is one of the, the sort of key consequential bits of these, these ships. Because they're the Royal Navy's first oil-fired, solely oil-fired battleships, which of course comes with geopolitical consequences. Yeah. Britain doesn't have, at this point, a domestic um, supply of oil. So um, back in 1886, I think the, Britain's first big oil company, the Burma Oil Company, this is founded in uh, and to, to exploit the oil fields of Burma. Um, and you know, a little bit further down the line, it's sort of becoming obvious that you know, oil fuel is, is perhaps the way to go um, because obviously Britain's got huge amounts of coal and has been you know, since HMS Warrior, and obviously before HMS Warrior, Britain's been using coal to fire its, uh, its steam engines on, on board its uh, warships and, uh, and other ships. But of course, oil, um, you, know, you get a lot more power per tonne out of it. It's you know, a lot cleaner to, to refuel, a lot easier. You, you can actually use pumps to put it into boilers rather than lots of large sweaty men with shovels <laughs> and so forth. Um, so you know, the, the Admiralty starts looking at oil in around 1904-ish, and they, they um, convert a little um, torpedo boat destroyer, HMS Spiteful. To, to oil firing, um, and they you know, put her up against one of her sister ships, I think it's HMS Petrel. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's blindingly obvious that you know, um, Spiteful is, is quicker, far faster to, to fuel and all the rest of it. It's, um, it's a remarkable change. So they start moving towards um, oil firing, start uh, building another class of destroyers. Uh, I think the tribal class are the first ones that are solely oil-fired. But still, they haven't quite you know, made the move with the, the big battleships, which obviously use thousands and thousands of tons of their stuff. And obviously that's because of the supply issues. Yeah, yeah. And it's not really until uh, an offshoot of the Burma Oil Company, the, uh, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, um, starts digging around the Middle East, and you can see where the, so the geopolitical consequences start coming in, um, that the Admiralty really starts looking at this. And in 1912, around the same time, they're, they're deciding to build the Queen Elizabeths and go to the 15-inch guns and so forth. They also decide to go for oil and thereafter uh, buy a very large chunk out of the, uh, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, put one of their Admirals, Vice Admiral Sir Edmund Slade on the board, and uh, uh, thereafter, um, Britain has a serious uh, interest in the Middle East because that's where the oil comes from to fire the Royal Navy's battleships. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? So, they, in, in effect, they come with a, a very you know, serious uh, geopolitical consequences. That's not to say, of course, that Britain, Britain wouldn't have been involved in the oil trade and. Uh, um, in the Middle East anyway, because of course oil is, is so utterly ubiquitous to our lives, but 
the Royal Navy and the Queen Elizabeth class, and obviously as part of that, HMS Barham is you know, right at the core of this. And what was her role in the First World War? How did they use this this amazing new weapon? Well, the the Queen Elizabeth class, uh, they have all have fairly active First World War. Um, Queen Elizabeth herself gets sent to Gallipoli um, as, as her shakedown kind of thing. Um, but the the main thing they do is they are at the core of the, the Grand Fleet, the most powerful squadron there. Um, yeah, all of them bar Queen Elizabeth, which I think is under refit at the time, um, and led by HMS Barham as the, the 5th Battle Squadron take part in the, the Great Battle of Jutland. Uh, very, um, you know, very active part in the battle there. They're with Beatty's Battle Cruiser Force um, and they he handles them fairly badly, so you know, takes them, uh, you know, um, positions them too far away to begin with to properly support him. And then uh, when he runs into the, the German battle fleet, he effectively sort of leaves them almost fighting off the entire German fleet. <laughs> On their own. <laughs> they had, but I mean, they, they, they take a fair bit of damage in the process, but they, they perform superbly. I mean, they, they cause a hell of a lot of damage in return because, of course, of, the, of their huge guns. I mean, it's just literally, say, the most powerful battleships in the world. And, you know, they, uh, they are there for the surrender of the um, high seas fleet at the, uh, the end of the war. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is, is of course, the, uh, as the flagship of the, the entire fleet. Um, is the, the site of the uh, um, little surrender ceremony of the, uh, the high seas fleet. Uh, something that was, of course, somewhat replicated uh, 25 odd years later for the uh, um, surrender of Japan. So that's yeah, all highly consequential. And, and obviously, um, uh, interesting little aside, they were also uh, the duty battle squadron at the time the um, High Seas Fleet scuttles itself in 1919. They okay. are the, the first ones on the scene. Then um, have a, a sort of fairly busy interwar period um, doing the, the usuals of, uh, of the um, Spanish Civil War and uh, you know, bits of... Uh, um, imperial policing in yeah. Palestine and all the flag, rest of it. Flag so waving, flag, threatening. Fl flying the flag and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, um, that's that's kind of their role. They've already had very active lives and, and a number of them start to be almost effectively entirely rebuilt, and especially um, famously war spite Queen Elizabeth and Valiant get almost entirely rebuilt um, with new anti-aircraft guns, armour, engines, and so forth. Barham is, is not as, as heavily rebuilt. I mean, she, she does get some modernisation before the Second World War, but not a great deal. Mm -hmm. But then the Second World War comes, and, and they're, they're, they've got this, this, this extraordinary weapon, and they need to, to, to use her as effectively as possible. And she finds herself in the Mediterranean. Yes, primarily that's um, that that becomes the the, the focus for her, of her her work. She does in, uh, she does indeed, um, and indeed at the start of the the war, um, despite the fact that uh, uh, the, the war is kind of going on elsewhere, um, she's actually sort of left in the Mediterranean for the first um, you know six nine months of the war, out and really out until the end of uh, um, December nineteen thirty nine. Um, she's kind of. She pretty much is the Mediterranean fleet for, for a large <laughs> chunk of this, um, because obviously the, the rest of the Mediterranean fleet has been, been drawn back home. Um, and she, she then heads home, and it's, it's not the greatest of homecomings, um, because uh, she finds herself, um, basically runs into one of her escorting destroyers, HMS Duchess, mm. uh, and sinks it, uh, literally as, as she's approaching Scotland. Um, on the, the journey home, which wasn't great. Does that happen at night or in a fog or something? It's, it's bad weather, but yeah, it's a uh, um, really quite uh, quite tragic accident. What a very sad way to begin the war. Absolutely. Uh, not long thereafter, um, Berrima herself is, is torpedoed by, I think it was the U-30, um, takes some damage uh, and is out for the next six months, so misses Norway. Um, and uh, various other bits and pieces around there. And 
When she rejoins the home fleet, uh, she's fairly promptly thereafter actually sent down, uh, and bear in mind this is sort of uh, August, September time in, the, uh, in 1940, so height of the Battle of Britain, um, Churchill decides to send uh, a small fleet down to uh, what is now Senegal, Dakar, with Charles de Gaulle aboard. Mm. Um, Why to, is he doing that? What's that for? Uh, it's, it's basically uh, an attempt, because France has obviously just uh, just surrendered. Uh, de Gaulle has basically become the, uh, the leader of um, a French government in exile, in effect. And what they want to do is try to bring over some of the French Empire to the Free French. Um, so they send down de Gaulle and fleet led by Berham uh, with uh, Vice Admiral John Cunningham aboard to try to persuade the, uh, the French authorities in, in French West Africa, as they now, now Senegal, to, uh, to change sides. Um, it does not go terribly well and um, you know, Berham and uh, I think it's Resolution, she's, uh, she's with the other uh, battleship, end up exchanging fire with the, uh, the French battleship Richelieu. Mm. Um, a French submarine then torpedoes um, Resolution and Berham has to sort of tow her away to, uh, to Freetown in Sierra Leone and, uh, and that's kind of the end of the operation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something of an unfortunate fiasco at that point. Um, and Berham is then sent back home and, uh, interestingly, uh, going via Gibraltar, she comes very close to being victim of uh, one of the first attacks by Italian naval commandos using um, sort of little human torpedoes. Um, At this stage, is the, is the French Navy still a, a significant strategic problem? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the French Navy has it remains a significant problem it's a lot of it has been neutralized um, with a, a major operation against um, the the French fleet at uh, at Merzel Kabir and also the uh, the elements of the French fleet that were at uh, at Alexandria and also um, that had gone to Britain at the uh, when uh, when France had been invaded so the, there was this whole huge operation uh, in July, just before the uh, just before Barham gets sent down to uh, to, to Dakar, uh, that they you know, the Royal Navy effectively takes out sort of half <laughs> half the French fleet mm. in literally a couple of days. They're, they're all either captured or, of course, tragically at uh, Mersel Kabir, um, a significant number of them are sunk. Um, so. There is you know, still a problem. There are still survivors out there. Uh, Richelieu is brand new, just about complete, and she's actually one of the really one of the most powerful battleships in the world at this point. Mm. Um, so she's highly dangerous, highly difficult problem for the Royal Navy if she actually comes out and does anything. But Fortunately, that doesn't uh, doesn't really occur. So, on the one hand, we've got the French, and then the other hand, you mentioned the the Italians, and they're starting the, this human torpedo thing. So, there, the, there's a there's an Italian threat in the in the Mediterranean as well. Absolutely, yes. the The, the Italians have declared war in June, just before the the French surrender. Um, so, that suddenly hu- completely opens up another front. Um, the British have had to start recreating the Mediterranean fleet almost from scratch drawing forces down away from Britain that might otherwise have been um, put to use in uh, the defence of Britain against uh, potential invasion and so forth. So huge strategic shift going on there. Um, The Suez Canal route is is effectively kind of shut, so British merchant shipping now has to go right round Africa, and it's it's a massive, massive strategic uh, shift. And it all to do with oil as well, which is where we started off talking about. Isn't absolutely, it? it's the, the the route through which Britain's oil comes now has to you know can't come through the, the Mediterranean. It's yeah. got to go around Africa, so you need more shipping, and there's um, a higher level of threat up the uh, the uh, Atlantic route. And it's yeah, um, it, there's a it's a massive, as I say, massive strategic shift. 
that happens in around that in and around that sort of mid nineteen forty um, point. Yeah. So, um, the, Berham has this fiasco um, with with de Gaulle, and that doesn't really work. And then and then is, did you say she was torpedoed or was nearly torpedoed? Oh, uh, it's on her it's on her way back. So she comes up from Freetown, having towed resolution in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, heads back up to, to Gibraltar and is sat there, you know, refueling for a couple of days. And um, the Italians decide to go for a little um, commando raid, basically. They send a couple of man torpedoes um, from the, the what will become the famous Decima Mass, the, uh, the um, 10th Commando Unit of the, the Italian Navy. They, they become very famous for this sort of stuff, and they, they send these little uh, say man torpedoes into Gibraltar to try to attach a, a massive charge to Barham's hull and, yeah, sink her uh, at harbour in, uh, in Gibraltar. Now, they don't quite make it. They get to about 200 feet of, of her hull um, and end up having to sort of let the, the charge off there and hope that the, uh, the shock wave will do something. It, it doesn't. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a warning shot that these guys are, are out there and are starting to do things, um, which isn't entirely heeded um, as, as uh, future events end up proving. But yeah, she, she thereafter um, heads up entirely safely and, and gets back to uh, gets back to Britain, um, and then um, is involved in one of the the big really great operations of the war and this is this is her return to the mediterranean um and it's it's all part of the operation that uh, ends up with the sinking of, uh, of half the italian fleet by the aircraft at uh, carrier illustrious at taranto yeah um now baron's part in this is basically she's loaded up with a battalion of, of troops and she's to go Right through the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah. Well, one of the advantages just to jump in there is the yeah. of these battleships. They are so enormous. They're also very, very effective for, for carrying troops, aren't they? Oh yeah, you, you can uh, quite happily do do stuff like this. And of course, they're you know, quick, well armoured, and so forth. And you can actually um, you know, send troops on them with a reasonable chance that they're they're going to uh, to make it, rather than on a slow. Yeah. Um, badly protected troop ship, potentially. Yeah. I wonder if that was, uh, they were aware of that, the designers, when they originally built them, or for the First World War, they were just imagining huge battle battle fleets fighting each other in the North Sea. I, I think it was, uh, it was primarily for naval warfare rather, yeah. than, uh, rather than amphibious warfare. But I mean, the, um, the Royal Navy had long sort of done bits and pieces like this. I mean, they, um, notably, I think the uh, the defence of Antwerp in 1914, mm. um, where the, the Royal Naval Division was delivered by um, the old pre-dreadnought -pre battleships in oh, the okay. Channel Squadron. So they do 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 stuff like this, yeah. um, and uh, I think some of the the. Battleship. The older battleships were also uh, involved in carting troops around at uh, Gallipoli as well. Yeah, so this this sort of thing does happen, but yeah, the, for the most part, the design is principally around uh, around naval warfare. Yeah, about around those guns. Anyway, so she's in the med and she's got a battalion of troops on. Yeah. Um, so she obviously heads back down from Britain via Gibraltar, um, and it's the thing we always remember about Taranto is the the great airstrike by uh, by the swordfish off of uh, Illustrious on Taranto. But there's this huge operation around it um, that it involves convoys to Greece, convoys to uh, Malta from Alexandria, convoys to Malta from Gibraltar, a um, couple of airstrikes from uh, from Ark Royal heading from uh, Gibraltar out onto Sardinia. It's, it's enormous operation. Berham's part on all of this is, is to, to cart this battalion of troops um, through to Malta and then proceed on to Alexandria to reinforce the, the Mediterranean fleet as, a, as another battleship. And yeah. she, she does this you know, pretty spectacularly. They, they, uh, they sort of head through the Mediterranean and Dark Royal launches her, her airstrikes. And uh, Berham arrives with, I think it's a couple of cruisers and they've got troops aboard as well. 
arrive in Malta because, of course, Malta, um, just to explain, of course, uh, is so close to Italy that it's had to be abandoned as the, the traditional great fleet base of the, the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean. They've had to pull back to Alexandria because of the, the threat of air attack. But you stu still do get visits by ships just sort of temporarily and, and Barham and this, this little fleet sort of arrive and they get the, uh, get the troops out on deck, do the, do the full lining of the deck, bands playing the, the whole nine yards and make a sort of terrific spectacle out of this um, and deliver these guys off and then pop off out. And it's you know, quite, uh, quite spectacular for, for morale, of course. You get to see this huge ship with the, the full yeah. band playing and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's Barham's part in all of this. And she, she's obviously a, a notable part of that operation. Um, and then finds herself in Alexandria for what will now be the, the final year of, uh, of her, her life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Alexandria um, being temporarily used as a, as a, as a naval base by the, by the British. Yes, it's, it was kind of the... It was designated as their backup fleet base when Italy starts to become more of a threat around the, uh, the Abyssinia crisis in, in 1935 and the the British suddenly start realising that, OK, if we find ourselves at war with Italy, Malta's probably not going to be tenable as a, as a fleet yeah. base. Yeah. Um, you're just going to end up with your fleet badly damaged by air attack and so forth. And it's We need a, a backup base, uh, and particularly something in the, the eastern basin that helps protect the, the vital Suez Canal. And Alexandria basically fits the bill. Yeah. So she's there. Um... I mean, it must lead towards the Battle of Massapan with, uh, you know, dealing with the Italians finally. Was she involved in that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, she she ends up, um, it becomes a, a fairly busy busy routine of, uh, of basically um, supporting the army and its operations in North Africa. So there's, there's bombardments, uh, famously of Bardia, um, Tripoli, um, and Benghazi as well, I think. And uh, you know, this is just sort of in support of the, the army's efforts in, in North Africa, uh, first against the Italians and against Rommel and the Germans, um, but also defending convoys and covering convoys that are heading for Malta or indeed for Greece, which has just been invaded by Italy just before, um, uh, just before Berum arrives. So Matapan is, of course, um, one of the, the big... Um, convoys out to Greece. Now, it's, it's one of those uh, those fascinating little ones because um, Britain has just, and it's an incredible piece of luck uh, and skill, it must be said, uh, Bletchley Park and a little team in there, they discover that um, the Italian fleet is planning to attack a convoy that's heading for Piraeus in, in Greece, a troop convoy. And 
thereafter this this sort of big operation is put together um, Admiral Cunningham the the commander-in-chief you know, takes his golf clubs ashore and <laughs> makes like he's uh, he's off for a weekend of golfing yeah. and then races back aboard uh, he is an amazing character as well. He's, if any of your listeners want to investigate a British admiral of the Second World War, look at Cunningham. He's fantastic. Absolutely. He's, he's one of the, the great characters and one of the great fighting admirals of the, the Royal Navy. Yeah. Do you know um, who, his, who his secretary was? My grandfather. I did not know that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Alec, we have known each other for God knows how many years, and you had not mentioned that to me, Sam. <laughs> no, well, there you are. <laughs> Damn you! There we are. So he goes. He goes ashore with his golf clubs to pretend everything's kind of okay. There's, there's, the, the British aren't doing anything. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's the Alexandria at this point in time is is kind of full of various uh, agents and so forth that, that would reveal movements to the Italians, um, particularly the the Japanese ambassador, a, a rather rotund chap who uh, I think Cunningham nicknamed the blunt end of the axis. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Um, who like, the Japanese and the Italians were actually pretty close, and uh, so. Um, the Italians allow the Japanese to, to look into the results of Taranto, of course, with... One can over-exaggerate the effects. It doesn't entirely lead to Pearl Harbor, but it kind of nudges things a bit further in that direction. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the Japanese ambassador is, is particularly one they, they like to fool. And uh, nightfall comes, and, of course, you know, Cunningham... Hot foots it back, uh, you know, blacked out car back to, to HMS Warspite. Uh, one of one of Barham's sisters is, which is the fleet flagship. Um, you know, loads himself aboard, uh, and they sail under the cover of darkness and, and head out uh, into the Mediterranean. And obviously, the the Italian fleet under Admiral Iacchino is is heading in uh, in the opposite direction. And what follows is, in, in some respects, a, a sort of classical sea battle. You, you kind of get the, uh, the, the two cruiser forces meet first, and the, the British cruisers try and draw the, the Italian cruisers back onto, uh, um, onto the guns, onto of, the the, onto the guns yeah. of the back yeah, yeah. of Cunningham's battleships. Um, Iacchino, with his flagship Vittorio Veneto, um, moves in to cut the cruisers off and... Uh, um, the the cruisers kind of the British cruisers um, have to be kind of rescued by a, an airstrike from uh, from HMS Formidable that, uh, that shifts the uh, the um, Italians off for a bit, and the the chase kind of resumes. And um, thereafter, there's a, another couple of strikes from uh, from Formidable. These have huge consequences for the the course of the battle. One of them hits um, Iacchino's flagship, the Vittorio Veneto. Right in the stern, um, you know, it's uh, that that vital soft spot that you know, kills the Bismarck and later Prince of Wales, and you know, slows down horribly, and is basically now sort of out of the battle and is in serious danger if if Cunningham catches up with her. The next one hits the heavy cruiser Polar. Mm -hmm. Now, these two ships. End up uh, suffering rather different fates because uh, through some you know, brilliant damage control um, and engineering work, um, you know, Iacchino's crew on the on the Veneto managed to get her moving again and obviously start limping for home. Um, Polar's crew do not, and Polar is, is left behind with um, two other cruisers, the, the Zara and the Fiume. Uh, under Vice Admiral Cataneo, uh, Cataneo, sorry, and they're you know, they're sort of there to try and escort her back, but she's basically not going anywhere. Night's falling at this point, and um, effectively, Veneto manages to to get back home. Um, Zara, Polar, and Fiume are effectively run into by uh, Cunningham's full battle fleet. And the British at this point, unlike uh, Barham's previous experience at Jutland, um, the, the British fleet at this point is now very well trained in night fighting. Um, battleship Valiant has, has got uh, radar. And 
they just sort of sweep in, find these cruisers. The, the Italians are not terribly well trained in, in night fighting, incidentally, of course. The, the Italian cruisers are completely unprepared, and the, the British should have come in, uh, and they, they get in really close. This is about three, 4,000 yards, point-blank range for those vast guns. And they you know, open fire, and they just smash them. Um, it's, it's just complete turkey shoot, basically. Um, and there's, there's a famous painting by uh, uh, Roland Langmaid um, of the, the sort of scene of the battle. And Barham, which is bringing up the, the rear of the line, is of course, you know, it's painting that's done from the rear quarters. So Barham at the rear is, is of course, front and centre to all of this. And you've got uh, searchlights reaching out to, to the cruiser Zara, Zara, which is her target. And those 15-inch you know, guns at uh, minimum depression just firing um, into this, this poor Italian cruiser. Uh, just caught completely by surprise and obviously no way of standing up to that level of firepower. And then, you know, each of the battleships fires five, six salvos each and, and that, that's it. That's it, all done. Yeah. Um, and thereafter, they can't catch uh, the Vittorio Veneto, so that's that's pretty much the end of the battle, and they they turn for home. Mm. Um, it's dealt a huge blow to the Italian to Italian you know, absolutely sea it's power, isn't it? Hu huge blow. It's just, you know, basically wipes out a, a cruiser squadron there um, in in one fell swoop. It's yeah. So the combination of the airstrike on the um, on their naval base, and then then this this sea battle effectively removes the Italians. Um, not entirely. The, I mean, the Italian fleet is, is one of those that um, I think we tend to over-exaggerate a little the, uh, the effects on the Italian fleet. The, the Italian fleet does still keep um, banging away and keeps doing things. And it's amazing yet, how often that's a theme that happens in, yeah. in naval history, where there, there has been a battle and everyone assumes that that's the end of the, it, that, the, the defeated fleet's influence. And it, it just doesn't work like that, does it? It, it does not, no. And it, it doesn't in this case. And the, the Italian fleet, I mean, it's, it's hamstrung particularly and primarily, really, by, by lack of oil and difficulties in, uh, in repairing damaged ships. That that's that's really the the key problem to um, a lot of their mobility. But they do still keep coming out, and they, you get the the battles of assert um, going ahead later on um, um, into to sort of nineteen forty two and so forth. And and it's really it's out until um, the sort of invasions of North Africa and then um, Italy and uh, Sicily and Italy itself. They don't really respond to those, but you know they they are still active throughout a, a large chunk of, of the rest of forty one forty two. Interesting. So the next stage is um, Crete. Must be the the next big campaign, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what's going on there? Why is Crete important? Well, it's it's all to do with I, I mentioned the the Italian invasion of Greece um, that didn't go terribly well, and the Germans then uh, remarkably. They, they sort of repeat Norway in terms of um, is a wild um, dispersion of their, their efforts. They're, they're obviously at this point prepping to, to do this huge invasion of the Soviet Union, yeah. but you know, Hitler authorises this little sideshow off down to, to the south, much as when they were preparing for the invasion of France, they disappeared off to Norway. These generals think it's nuts. But, um, so by the end of, uh, end of April, um, in essence, the, the Allies are having to, to withdraw from Greece and they, they start an evacuation uh, process. And in the middle of this, um, you know, the, the Germans go for, just completely go for broke. It's a completely mad operation, but they decide to, to go for the uh, island of Crete, mm. which has got a British airfield and British garrison, uh, uh, New Zealanders as well, um, on it. And they go for this despite the fact that the Mediterranean fleet is there. They've, they've got no control of the, the sea or anything like that. So they have to do it with paratroopers. And the, the Luftwaffe just you know, send in their, their, uh, their parachute um, guys, the Fallschirmjager, under General Kurt Student. And it's, it's an astonishing military feat because the, the paratroopers go in um, and it's, 
it's carnage. The, the losses are huge, but they managed to take the airfield and thereafter the, the rest of the island and fairly shortly thereafter the literally end of May again for the second year running, um, harken back to Dunkirk, uh, the Royal Navy is finding itself covering, uh, uh, running a, another major evacuation. The, the British have got to get out of Crete. Um, and it's, this one's bloody. Um, the Luftwaffe is a lot better at, uh, um, at anti-shipping. You've got less air cover, particularly now uh, Malmé Airfield's gone and Greece is, uh, is basically fallen at this point. So yeah, it starts to get uh, bloody. You get um, War Spike gets damaged, uh, Valiant gets damaged, uh, famously of course with, uh, with the young Prince Philip aboard. Um, Mount Batten's destroyer Kelly gets sunk along with various others. And uh, you know, it's, it's a mess. And in the middle of this, um, Cunningham is, is kind of offered the, the opportunity to, uh, um, to stop the evacuation. And of course sends the, the famous signal in response. Uh, takes the Navy three years to build a ship. It'll take 300 years to rebuild the tradition. The evacuation will continue. The famous, um, famous line, and uh, of course the the evacuation does continue, but the the losses are, are quite grim. And you know, um, at the end of it, I mean, Cunningham, famously a, a sort of aggressive up and atom guy, and you know, sends at least one cruiser out, um, you know, telling them to just sort of stiffen their upper lip, and they because they're exhausted and at breaking point, they get sunk, and he's then seen on the dockside at Alexandria, um, you know, virtually tears in his eyes, welcoming them back uh, back home. He knows what's going on, but he, he feels that this has to happen. So they, they keep pushing ahead and in amongst all of this, um, they try to reduce the, uh, the Luftwaffe air attacks by sending um, Formidable out to, uh, to run an airstrike on a, a German airfield at Scarpanto. And she's escorted by Barham. And um, basically, this doesn't work terribly well. Um, and all they do really is, is stir up a hornet's nest of, of attention. Formidable gets badly damaged, and Barham gets a bomb on Y turret, the, uh, the one that's uh, manned by the Royal Marines. Uh, gets badly damaged and has to be sent to Durban in South Africa for repairs for the next few months. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting part of the war, isn't it, where, where things are not necessarily going the way the British want them to. It's a particularly bloody part of the war for the Royal Navy. Absolutely, yes. Um, <clears throat> and it's, this is, you know, the, the losses suffered by the, the, the Mediterranean fleet at this point are, are huge. I mean, they, they've, ironically, literally just before the, uh, the um, Crete really kicks off, they, they receive a reinforcement for a, of the uh, Queen Elizabeth herself. Uh, arrives on station, um, so the, the the fleet has been at, at its most powerful, arguably, um, but then Crete just smashes its way through a huge amount of that strength in in fairly short order. Um, but I mean, they, you know, the the ships do get repaired. Um, I mean, formidable, I think, has to be sent to the U.S. for major repairs. But uh, Barham comes back. Uh, a few months later, and joins uh, with Queen Elizabeth and, uh, and Valiant. You know, War Spite's damage is, is far more significant. She gets sent off to the States as well. But she does return uh, before the end of the year, um, in uh, September, October. So the, the damage gets repaired at, uh, at Durban, and uh, by the end of, uh, end of September, start of October, she's back with the Mediterranean fleet doing the, the convoy covers and um, supporting the army. And also um, because, of course, the Italians are having to support um, you know, their forces in North Africa with convoys from Italy and you know, send supplies that way. They're also trying to intercept and, uh, and stop those. And it's on one of these operations that uh, Berem is, is tragically lost. Mm. By a, a, is a, a German U-boats patrolling? Absolutely. I mean, it, along with the, uh, the German Air Force and the uh, um, 
German troops and the Africa Corps and so forth, the, the Germans send U-boats into, uh, um, into the Mediterranean to try and affect the war there. And in uh, it's end of November, the British get the, uh, get the message that an Italian convoy is heading for North Africa. And they send a small group of, uh, of cruisers out to, uh, to intercept and also use the battle fleet. Queen Elizabeth, Valiant, Barham, to try and cover this just in case the Italians decide to, to send out their fleet. So, as we said earlier, the, the whole idea of, uh, of the Italians still being stuck in harbour is, is not really quite, uh, quite accurate. And in essence, the, the, the cruisers go in and they sink a couple of, uh, of ships. But in the midst of all of this, unfortunately, um, a U-boat, U331, manages to slip its way through, and it's literally, I think she gets with, the U-boat the gets within about three, four hundred yards of, wow. of one of the, the British destroyers, and they, they sort of slip between two of them through the screen. And having you know, tracked the fleet and got, got into position, uh, and they, they get into position, and all of a sudden, um, you know, Barham is sat there in the crosshairs of the U-boat skipper um, through the periscope, and they fire a spread of torpedoes, and I think it's four, um, four torpedoes go through, and three of them hit. Mm. And Barham, not terribly well modernised, uh, First World War design, can't take this sort of uh, punishment and very rapidly starts healing over, as we see in the film. Crew starts abandoning and obviously, uh, you know, obviously Barham then explodes and sinks very rapidly. Um, U331 has, has an interesting time of it actually because um, the combination of firing torpedoes um, and I think it's Valiant's wake actually makes the submarine broach the surface and, mm. uh, and she, she gets fired at with uh, um, anti-aircraft guns and so forth before uh, crash diving and uh, going actually noticeably as I recall going beyond crush depth <laughs> or certainly beyond her, beyond her safety depth uh, until she levels out and, uh, and manages to uh, to evade and escape but it's, it's quite uh, quite a remarkable one and obviously a horrible horrible loss for the for the Royal Navy. And they kept it quiet, didn't they? They did. Um, and it's um, obviously to try to cover the fact that um, you know, the, the Mediterranean fleet had been significantly weakened yeah, by the a loss massive of hole this, in the British power. Yeah, then. this hugely powerful battleship. Not long after, of course, Ark Royal has been sunk um, at the other end of the Mediterranean. And it's you know, the the losses are starting to to mount throughout this period for the the Royal Navy really really quite badly. And they do, I mean they they do actually notify next of kin. They they write out various uh, letters to uh, to the um, eight hundred or so that are lost, and obviously there are the survivors as well. So the 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 next of kin are asked to to keep it quiet and they don't officially announce it, um, but. No, or rather, they don't officially announce it until um, January 1942. So they, they keep it quiet for a, a couple of months, really. Uh, unlike the, uh, the First World War example of, of HMS Audacious, where they, they didn't actually bother announcing it until after the end of the war, despite <laughs> the fact that you'd sunk in the first couple of weeks, um, which I mean, everybody knew about, but it was, it was kind of a, a bit of a ludicrous situation. Um, yeah, but they, they announced it after a, after a couple of months, but it's... There is a curious story attached to the end of this, and it's that in the middle of all of this, um, the sinking of HMS Barham results in one of the last convictions for witchcraft in Britain. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. No, not many people do. Um, it's, it's a fascinating one. Um, a story about, oh, what's her name? Helen Duncan, as I recall, um, who's a um, sort of spiritual medium who um, comes out with, uh, you know, starts telling people that she's 
seen this sailor dressed in white and you know, she, she'd been told HMS Baron's been sunk. And I mean, they can't find out who actually leaked it to her because she just sort of keeps sticking to her story of this, this, right. this spiritual figure. Yeah. And so in the end, they just, you know, just to kind of shut her up, basically, they, they convict her of witchcraft <laughs> and bang her up for nine months. Oh, God. Um, just to, to sort of keep it quiet. But I mean, they, as I say, they give or take, there's sort of 800 or so um, people given um, letters telling them that HMS Barron's been sunk and you know, terribly sorry that your son has, has you know, son, father, etc., has, has been killed. Um, you know, I think they, they figured on average there's about 10 family members that would thereafter get told. So you can start seeing the you know, yeah. thousands upon thousands of people that actually know about yeah. this. Um, so it's as I say, not the best kept secret ever. So there, there are ways and means in which she, she almost certainly found out. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a fascinating one that she, you get the, one of the last convictions for witchcraft. Which I think they, they abandoned that law in 1944. Um, it's, it's repealed, but yeah, she she is one of the one of the, if not the last convictions for witchcraft in uh, in Britain, and this results from the sinking of, of HMS Barham. Well, very unexpected ending. And Phil, thank you very much indeed for sharing us the story of this um, this remarkable ship. And for all of you listening, do please uh, find the Society of Nautical Research on social media and make sure that you uh, you watch the footage. Thank you very much. Cheers, Phil. My pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Do please take the time to find the Society for Nautical Research on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Please also take the time to find the Mariner's Mirror podcast's own YouTube channel, where we have some wonderful and innovative videos teaching you all about our maritime past. But best of all, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research. Your annual subscription will help support this podcast. It will help us publish our quarterly journal, yes, also called The Mariner's Mirror, which has been published for over a century. And it will go towards helping to preserve and protect our maritime past. Members also receive other benefits, not least of which is being able to attend our annual meeting and have dinner on the gun decks of HMS Victory. And we have just launched a series of online winter lectures presented by some of the biggest names in maritime history. Though to attend, you do have to be a paying member. So go on, treat yourself. If you aren't already a member, please join. We hope to see you soon.